to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. The story says there were two brothers. Without any additional information, I'm guessing you know what happens next. Siblings fight. Slowly raise your hand this morning if you've ever found yourself sideways in a relationship with your own kin. All right, now every single one of you put your hands down again. One study of siblings found that when they are left together, siblings will fight every 17 minutes. Some of you have been watching your children 24-7 during quarantine, and you think 17 minutes is a conservative estimate. We call it sibling rivalry. Psychologists have studied it. Novelists have written about it. Historians have documented its effects on history. The Bible mentions sibling rivalry again and again and again. Nobody, nobody shapes your life more than your sibling. Think about it. Our siblings are there helping us to create our earliest impressions of reality. Our parents are there too, but our parents occupy that mysterious adult world. Our siblings are down in there with us. Sometimes siblings will confirm our reality by sharing it with us. But our siblings, and this is important, our siblings are our first incontrovertible evidence that people are different. They think different. They act differently than we do. And of course, we are always comparing ourselves against our siblings, against their attitudes and accomplishments and the privileges that they get that we don't get. And of course, we're also always competing with them for what seems like the scarcest of all resources, our parents' attention and affection. This close encounter with difference, difference that is unmanageable and irreducible, sometimes means that we end up hating people who are our own flesh and blood. Cain and Abel's story is a mirror into our persistent difficulties with our closest kin. Cain is older. His name means create or possess. He's active. He's an agent Abel is younger. His name in Hebrew means breath, like a gentle breeze. He is almost transitory or passive. You hear in that that even in their names, they are two shadows of the same reality, both sides of a single coin. Each brother has a job to do. Also, Cain is a tiller and Abel is a shepherd. Both of them are essential workers. Each brother makes his offering to God. It's the Bible's first human act of worship. Each gives the work of his own hands to God, the sweat of his labor, the best that he has to offer. 
And that is exactly where the trouble starts because God takes Abel's gift and loves it. And God sees Cain's gift and rejects it. Now, perhaps you assume that there is something wrong with Cain, something implicitly wrong with him, that there's some defect in his character or or in the gift that he gives, but nothing in the text suggests that that is true. The rift in their relationship is caused by God. I feel like I need to say that the God of Scripture, time and time again, and in a maddening way, plays favorites. Now, our best instincts uh, and all of the parenting books that we have read uh, over the years have told us that playing favorites is not good, that it leads to conflict and heartache and grief. And so we try to avoid that. But God plays favorites all the time, and God chooses Abel's offering over Cain's offering. There's no justification, no explanation, divine favor for one, divine rejection for the other. Cain is angry, and I would guess that you understand that anger. It is exactly what you and I feel when we are rejected. We give the best that we have. We offer our best gifts. We present our very selves, what matters most to us, what we are most passionate about, the thing closest to our heart. We offer it up tenderly to another and we ask them to accept it, to at least acknowledge it, to confirm us and and receive and acknowledge our dignity. And then, then we are rejected. Maybe overlooked, maybe dismissed casually, maybe rebuked. Is there a more dehumanizing experience than than having our own person rejected? You know what feelings sweep over you when this happens. You don't need me to tell you what rejection feels like in your spirit. You Remember it. Even today, you remember it. Even if it was a long time ago, you still remember it. You don't need me to spell out for you the kind of anger that our rejection can kindle inside of us. And you probably don't need me to tell you what kind of destructive words, thoughts, and actions that each of us is capable of when we are angry. Cain is angry, and I can't help but feel he has every right to be so. But God comes back with a word for Cain. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry, Cain, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Cain's sin is lurking at the door. Sin's desire is for you, but you, Cain, must master it. So God provokes Cain's anger. And now God gives Cain a choice. What 
will you do? In your anger, Cain, sin is going to come lurking at your door. Sin will want to come now into your house and take possession of your house. Sin will want to take possession of you. Will you let it? Or will you master it? How about you? Will you master it? As I said last week about the story of Adam and Eve, these stories in the early part of Scripture are not about where we've been and how we got to this place. They are very much stories about where we are now, about who we are right now, and therefore about who we will become in the days that lie ahead. So when you experience rejection, when someone dismisses you or overlooks you, when someone refuses to acknowledge your humanity when you have offered it up to them and the anger and the shame and the rage start to heat up inside you when the sin comes lurking at your door and wants to come in, what What will you do? I don't suppose I need to tell you that there is ample evidence in our own world that when many of us are rejected, we respond with anger and violence toward those who would and should be our brothers and sisters. Ask any person, ask any person who harbors hate for someone else and ask them why they hate that person. And I know that you will hear a story. They will tell you exactly what that other person did to them that made them hate. And then if you go and you ask that other person what what they did, why they did that thing, they will probably almost certainly tell you a story about what the first person did to them, some kind of slight that went unseen or unacknowledged. And there it goes, right? It goes back and forth and back and forth, and hatred and anger and violence has no beginning. We never get to the bottom. There is no original sin, no original sin. There is only that circle that we talk about, disrespect, begetting anger, begetting violence, begetting disrespect, begetting anger, begetting violence, and so on and forever. Brother against brother. And yet even despite this truth, there are moments, and you and I have seen them even in the last week when people of faith and people of courage step in and we say stop. There are moments when if we listen, we can hear our brother's blood crying up from the ground, a victim of senseless violence, and we know this must stop. That one over there, 
That one over there is my brother. That is my kin. That is the one who knows all my secrets. The one whose life is eternally tangled up with my life. That one over there is my brother. And I am my brother's keeper. I uh, don't suppose that I will ever understand God's role in this story. But I do give thanks to God for two things. Number one, at the end of the story, God puts a mark on Cain. That mark is a sign of God's abiding presence and protection for Cain. And it is a reminder to all of us that whoever it is who has hurt us, as hard as this is for us to believe, that person remains our kin and remains a beloved child of God. Number two, I'm grateful for God's charge to Cain. God's charge to Cain is also, I hope you heard today, a call to you that we may yet, and even in our anger, we may yet be the master of our sin. We are not condemned to be possessed by it. We may, each of us and all of us, master it. And for those of us who walk in the way of Jesus who was also the Christ. I know that we are given by God an example of what it does look like to master our sin. It begins with grace when each of us repents honestly and fully of all the times when we, like Cain, have sinned in our anger. It looks like the strength for any of you to turn the other cheek when someone's anger is directed at you and somehow find the strength to meet their violence with nonviolent force. It looks like the courage to stare into the face of an enemy, to those who bear the mark of Cain and see even them with eyes of love and refuse to hurt your brother no matter what they have done to you. And for those of us who look toward Jesus to master our sin, we also see that it looks like having faith. The kind of faith it takes to experience rejection. And yet never forget that you are God's beloved, that you bear a mark. That mark is the image of God that God put on you and and you know because you bear that mark that nothing, nothing that anyone can think about you, say about you or do to you, nothing can ever separate you from God's love. You bear the mark of God's love. This is a hard story because it holds up a mirror to each of us and to the world we share. But this is the best story ever.
let the people say, Amen.